Las Vegas, Nevada. What's the nickname? It's Sin City. We know that, don't we? There's certainly many good people that live in Las Vegas. We as a church have met some. I've met some personally. But Sin City identifies the downtown strip where all manner of sinful activity is notoriously available, legal, and celebrated. And one of the most recognizable taglines in American tourism is fittingly, and you probably know this as well, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The fantasy behind the tagline is that you can live like the devil and leave your sin behind in Sin City, washing your hands of it on the way out of town. The book of Leviticus points us in exactly the opposite direction. The big question, as we know, as we've made our way through the book to this point, is now that the tabernacle has become the dwelling place of God, how does it become the meeting place with God? How do sinners approach God here at this tabernacle? God in all of His glory, sinners in their vileness, how do they come to this place and meet with God here? The tabernacle is not sin city. The tabernacle is the very opposite. It is purity city. It is the most holy place on planet earth. It is now the sanctuary of God. Leviticus chapters 1 through 16 have answered this question in a drama that is played out in ritual, and it has included, and we can remind ourselves of the message of this book to this place, it has included sacrifices, animals killed in the place of sinners. It has included priests, individuals who mediate between the sinner and God. It has included laws of ritual cleanness. Not necessarily sinful acts, but even ways that are just normal, natural life processes. Leave one unclean as we come into the pure presence of God. And the pinnacle of this approach to a holy God comes in chapter 16, which we considered last week, where the dwelling place of God is purified by an elaborate ritual observance. It's almost as if all of the approach of sinners to this place, now it needs to be flushed of the sin, of the, of the wickedness and filthiness of those who so approach God. And so Israel is cleansed in this elaborate ritual observance as the tabernacle is cleansed. You remember with Israel there's the one goat that is killed in the place of sinners. It's blood applied on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant behind the Holy of Holies. And the other goat sent off into the wilderness bearing figuratively the guilt of Israel's sin. Sent away. Our sacrifice made the substitute dying for the sinner and the guilt removed and sent off as far as the east is from the west. If we stopped right here, and this is all we knew about the book of Leviticus, we could just about conclude that the point is that what happens at the tabernacle stays at the tabernacle. 
The drama of Israel's ritual system demonstrates the utter holiness of God, the pristine sacredness of this meeting place, and how difficult it is for sinners to approach it. There are these life-dominating ritual purity laws that pertain to food and to skin and to body fluids. Every area of your life brought under this consideration of how do I as a sinner approach the presence of a holy God. But the book doesn't end. At the pinnacle moment of the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, it moves on to chapter 17 and through 27, where we learn that what happens at the tabernacle is not to stay at the tabernacle. When sinners approach the holy God on His terms, the intended result is that this holiness goes home with them. That this holiness is taken away from the tabernacle and is to infuse itself into every area and aspect of their lives. And what good news this is. How distinctive it makes the Israelites. Because the God of Israel met at the tent with Israel, because this God is a holy God, they were to be a holy people as they returned home. Now admittedly, we will see this theme worked out much more fully in the chapters that come. But the diffusion of God's glory into the daily life of His people, the influence of that glory upon their life in holy living begins to play itself out here, it's dramatized here in chapter 17. As it transitions away from the tabernacle into daily life, it's very fitting that it starts with what's probably closest to the tabernacle, and that's the worship of God's people. But here, understand, as we come to chapter 17, it's not the worship of God's people beginning at the tabernacle but the worship of God's people in daily life. And how do they look at that? And how does His holiness affect them? Two areas will be covered here. Sacrificial animals and the use of blood or the ingestion of blood. And it's um, the law against it. Now we've learned, haven't we, through this book, you don't ever write Leviticus off. You don't ever say that's irrelevant. That's got nothing to do with me. You keep digging and you find it's got a lot to do with us. So while we are not sacrificing animals, and I don't think anybody considered today whether or not they'd ingested blood from an animal, we know that the connections are here. That God is steering us and directing us to certain conclusions and ways of thinking about Him and about our lives in relationship with Him. So we listen and we learn as we watch the story unfold, the drama unfold. We learn, first of all, beginning at verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 17, and following the sanctity of sacrifice, the holiness of sacrifice, the distinctiveness of sacrifice. Our worship belongs exclusively to God. Again, we know this, the Bible teaches it from start to finish, but think here in the drama of this legislation, how God steers His people to think this way. We are to worship no other gods. 
verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. The Day of Atonement, chapter 16, the ultimate moment of purity. Now, God says, I'm talking to you as you go home. Verse 3, If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord... Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He, shall be, he has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. You notice in verse 3, we're dealing here with clean, domesticated animals useful for sacrifice, and they are killed outside the camp. That is, beyond the perimeter of Israel's encampment which encircled the tent of meeting, or at least outside the tabernacle area. These are people by their homes, their tents, as they circle that tabernacle, and even outside into the wilderness who are killing a clean animal. You notice verse 4, the issue is that one must bring the sacrificed animal to the tent of meeting. That's the thing at issue here. To shed an animal's blood to eat its meat is a freedom that God gives to people in Genesis 9. But to shed an animal's blood for worship that is not then presented at the tent of meeting is treated like murder. One will be cut off from among his people. That's, I don't think, capital punishment because there's no evidence that this was ever executed by people, being cut off from one's people. There's a number of possibilities but he is guilty as if a murderer in God's eyes and liable to God's providential discipline, whatever that would be. It would be something like a physician saying to you, I'm sorry to inform you, you have a terminal illness. You could die any day. It's in a sense what it means to be cut off from among your people, that it doesn't really address the issue of repentance. It doesn't address the issue of when or how God may cut you off from the people. There seemed to be sometimes an application to some sort of excommunication from the assembly because of this status before God. But one thing the Israelites got right away as, they, as we move in thought away from the tabernacle is you don't do this. If you kill one of these animals outside the camp, in the wilderness, for instance, you take it to the temple, to the tabernacle. It's a serious matter. Now there's an interpretive question your brain's working on right now, whether you've thought about it or not, but it probably is evident to you here. There's an interpretive question, and that is, does this refer to animal sacrifice to God or to the killing of any animal? Because... To eat meat is a freedom that God has given to people. Many believe that the reference here is to all animals sacrificed for food and for meat. And that this regulation only applied during the time that the tabernacle was in the center of the encamped Israelites. That's a very worthy conclusion 
<coughs> that may be the case, and I share that option here because so many believe that that's the case. But I take the reference here not to the killing of animals for normal food, but sacrificial animals, which may be confirmed, I think, by the next verse. Verse 5, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord. It's really clear what the emphasis of verse 5 is, isn't it? Four times the word sacrifice appears. And the Hebrew word behind this English translation is the word typically used not for the slaughter of an animal to eat, but for the sacrifice of an animal in worship. And that part of that animal may be eaten. But it's a Hebrew word that typically speaks of sacrifice. So if you look at verse 5, it says, this is to the end. Why this regulation? It's to this end that when sacrifices are made, they are always brought to the tent of meeting, to this tabernacle where God's presence dwells among the people. Well, then we might ask, well, what else would Israel do with sacrificial animals? Where else would they bring a sacrificial animal but to the tabernacle? The answer comes in verse 6. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. They prostituted themselves to the sacrifices going to goat demons or goat idols, depending on how that phrase is translated. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generation. So there's more here than meets the eye and more here that's explainable uh, that we can understand just immediately. But these verses support the conclusion that animal sacrifices are in view. Goat demons or goat idols, commentator George Bush says that the ancient historian Herodotus writes that all goats were worshipped in Egypt, particularly the he-goat. From this mythology came the satyr, dryads, fawns, and the like, and you say, what are those? Read Chronicles of Narnia and you'll get it figured out. Or watch it and you'll even more get it figured out. All of these are, just say, woodland-type gods, this mythology. Well, it's really connected here to Egypt in part, and the Israelites have just left Egypt. It's interesting, too, that Bush brings out that this inspired the depictions in more Christian cultures of the devil looking like what? Got a tail, horns, and feet, the cloven feet. All of this related to this sort of ancient string of thinking. But we kind of smile at it. Uh, I heard a pastor that had that depiction of the devil and he sat it on his, his desk. And people said, why on earth would you have a, a, a image of Satan on your desk? He's got with the, the horns and the tail and the pitchfork and the feet and all that. And he said, because that's exactly what Satan does not look like. He's an angel of light. But we get the point, don't we? 
There is that sort of depiction here. But what we might even smile at and even sit on our desk to make a point with some sense of humor was serious business in Israel. And what we need to picture here is that there are people taking from the culture that they have left, from this godless environment, this practice of going out into the wilderness where it's, it's remote and offering goats in pagan worship. God is saying here in no uncertain terms, that will stop. That must stop now. This type of practice is not why God saved His people. The community apparently is believing, God's people are somehow believing, that what happens in the wilderness stays in the wilderness. That we can offer these offerings, these sacrifices outside the camp and not offend God in His holiness at the center of the camp. We can play our games and do our sin on the outside and God will look the other way. What happens in the wilderness stays in the wilderness. And here the holiness of God reverberates out from the tabernacle and says, Stop. I will be worshipped alone. There is one true and living God, and to offer sacrifices to any other God is to break covenant. It is to whore. That is, it trades on the image of Israel violating a marital covenant with God. It is unfaithfulness. Now we know in later history that this didn't stop it, did it? In later history we see the hills around the promised land, many of them with pagan shrines, and Israelites climbing to those low hills, and on, at those shrines prostituting themselves, indeed even literally, to Baal and Ashtaroth. But God here seeks to nip this in the bud, to stop it right before it starts, or it has, been, it has been going on, but to stop it now through legislation and to say all sacrifices come in to the holiness of God, to the tabernacle. Verse 8, And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. It's not that the strangers would all become Israelites, but they were not going to have this influence in, among God's people. And so they too would be judged by God were they to offer false sacrifices at a false altar to a false god. There is one altar. That is that bronze altar burning the sacrifices at the entrance to the tent where the glory of God resides. One altar. There is one priesthood. There is only clean sacrifice offered to the one God. We see again the steerage of this legislation. How thoroughly 
it prepares us to understand and track in certain lines. God is not a God to be shared with other gods. He is a jealous God because He should be a jealous God. He demands our undivided loyalty because He redeemed us. Redeeming Israel out of Egypt. Redeeming us from our sin. And because He loves us with undivided loyalty, there is only one to worship. There's only one God. Now we live in quite a different world, don't we? Anybody tempted here with he-goat worship? Or he-goat sacrifice? Can we imagine some teens in Israel saying, hey, after dark tonight, let's sneak outside the camp and sacrifice a he-goat. I mean, we just don't relate to that. Our idols are very different. They may be seen by us as more sophisticated, but they're no less a violation of loyalty to Christ. We see this theme in the mouth of Jesus as He says in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And I would suggest that money here is seen as an idolatrous interest. Money can be a God with a small g that runs how we think, dominates all of our thoughts all day long, and everything that we do in our lives is driven by this God. God says, I alone am to be worshipped. There is only one God. Whether the lust of the flesh and that desire to be pleased, the lust of the eyes and that desire to get and have, or the pride of life, that desire to be honored in pride, whatever it is, we have our gods. We have our false gods that nip away At the edges of our interests and our souls as God's people, we must despise them, we must turn from them. There is only one altar, one place of worship. Drawing on something of this theme, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul saying, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? I think there are direct roots with what Paul is saying here to what we find in Leviticus 17 and through this book. There is one Lord, and you can't eat at two tables. You can't sacrifice to the wilderness to a he-goat and then come in and sacrifice to God on another day. You bring your sacrifices to this one temple. And so we're instructed here, the sanctity of sacrifice, our worship belongs exclusively to God. This is not news to us, but it is absolutely vital reminder how the holiness of God is to influence every day of our lives. There's one God in my life. Do I worship Him in truth? Secondly, at verse 10, the sanctity of blood. Life belongs exclusively to God. Our worship belongs exclusively to God, and life itself belongs exclusively to God, which is brought out in this ritual. 
and in this law. Verse 10, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. This isn't God being grumpy, let's remember. It's God certainly being very severe, but it's God seeking to teach His people a lesson that they have to get, that we have to get, and as they face this legislation, it benefits us to understand how God thinks, what is important, how we relate to a holy God. So anyone who eats any blood, the point is that eats meat, which has not been properly drained of blood. Why such a regulation? God explains, verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is difficult to interpret, a little bit difficult even to translate, but blood represents what one has called the principle of vitality. For 2,000 years, just by way of illustration, for 2,000 years up into the 19th century, we can read this especially in Civil War discussions of how they treated the injured, but all the way back to uh, the Egyptians, and for 2,000 years, doctors practiced bloodletting. And it's it's a philosophical discussion, not a physiological reason for this, but thinking about medicine from... Uh, philosophical standpoint, there was an idea that blood needed to be let out to aid the health of individuals at certain times, and, and it was far too widely applied. There is bloodletting that goes on today in a very narrow number of diseases and how they are treated. But so often, there were individuals who were injured in battle, developed some sort of illness, something of the like, And the answer was to pick their wrist and let them bleed out a while. To get the blood level right was the thinking. Today this idea is just utterly mocked. It's ridiculous. And we often would say, as we think about this, people say they were literally draining the life from their patients. If I said that about bloodletting and I was giving a tour, let's say, and this is where so-and-so died, uh, this is where Stonewall Jackson died, and they let his blood out, and they were, they were draining his life away. They were killing him. He probably died anyway, but they were killing him, right? If I, if I said that, you go, yeah, that's, that's a point. It's not that life is so, the blood is somehow life itself, but it is a principle of vitality. It shows health. It shows vitality in life. God's people must never eat blood because life belongs to God. That's the point. If an Israelite knew anything, he or she knew you do not drink blood. And that has to bring us to remember the words of our Savior. I don't know how we read Leviticus, don't eat blood, don't ingest blood, and miss what Jesus says in John 6. I can get under John 6 here. The Jews disputed among themselves when he said, I'm the bread of life, you'll die without me. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So there's the eating of the flesh. If there's any question what Jesus means, he means eating flesh with blood in it. So he says it this way, whoever drinks my blood has the judgment of God? No, has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. We recognize Jesus, of course, is not talking literally here, as many have taken it, mostly critics of the Christian faith. He's not speaking literally here, but through the legislation that God instituted in Leviticus 17, it was drilled into Israel's head, you don't ingest blood. Because blood is life, and life belongs to God. But all of this is, one again, one of the indications that we know who Christ is. We know we're on the right track as we come to discern His teaching. My blood is life, says Jesus, and not, you must not drink it. But now all of that legislation is pointing to the one blood that you must drink, and that is mine. That is, you must identify with me as the sacrifice for your sin, as the Lord of your life, and in doing that, you ingest life, in a sense, in figurative sense. I, to drink my blood is eternal life. To drink the blood, to eat the blood of an animal not properly sacrificed and prepared for the Israelites, was to come under the judgment and condemnation of God. But to figuratively ingest the lifeblood of Jesus Christ shed for us is to come alive. It's to have eternal life. And I wonder... I wonder this morning... If you've received this blood, if you have come to commune with Christ in this way, to know that His body was sacrificed for you, to, to stand in the place of the sinner and to give His life away, His blood flowing in a violent death that stands in and pays the penalty of sin. All that this ritual system was teaching God's people to see, how He was teaching them to think, finds its fulfillment in Jesus crucified. The sacrifice to pay the penalty of sin. The one crucified outside the camp that our sin guilt may be sent away as far as the east is from the west. Christians didn't invent Jesus all of a sudden. They didn't get so upset with this one who was executed as a common criminal because he was misunderstood by Rome and then they turned him into a god on the moment, on the spot, somewhere soon down the line. Very soon after he was crucified, they made him into a god. The truth of the matter is, is that God had for centuries been preparing, prophesying, instructing, directing all of His people from generation to generation to generation to say, this 
is the Lamb of God. This is the blood that we drink. This is the one whose shed blood is eternal life. We all know you don't drink blood. You don't eat blood. But now, this blood, figuratively speaking, is God's plan of salvation. His plan of redemption. The tent of meeting was the holy city. And what happened at the tent of meeting was to reverberate from its borders into people's lives. It was one thing for the tent to be holy and for the priests to be holy in their consecration and in their dedication to the Lord's worship. That was absolutely vital. But what we begin to see now at chapter 17 through the end of the book becoming more and more clear, will grow increasingly clear, that the people are holy to the Lord as well. That we are to be holy in all that we do. No other God and our life in Christ. Worship starts indeed at chapter 17 in the home. It starts a sacrifice made among the tents or even a sacrifice that's made out in the wilderness. But in devotion to the Lord, sacrificed even there, it is then brought to the tabernacle. It's not a direct parallel, but it's certainly applicable. It's an analogy to what we do here. I hope that you come today to this assembly worshiping. That at home you read God's Word. That at home you pray to the Lord. That as a family you seek the Lord together as you are able and that you're a worshiping family. And that families and individual worshiping hearts then come together to the assembly. We as the temple of God, His people, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And to celebrate Not ourselves, not our clan, not our denomination or our particular way, but to celebrate above everything else Jesus Christ crucified and risen. We come together to celebrate here as we have been worshiping God throughout the week in our homes. We see the pattern established here on some level. The worship even outside in the wilderness always comes back to Christ, always comes back to the center and to God's glory as His people assemble in His presence. And so we also learn then that our redemption from sin by Jesus' bloody sacrifice is is to result in a life of holiness. We have a long history, I think, as a church to steer away from this thought, but may we continue to do so and may we be standing rightly against the idea that salvation is a ticket to heaven and I can enter into Sin City and what happens there stays there because I've got my ticket to heaven. This goes counter to everything that the Scriptures teach. If you come into the presence of a holy God who gives the life of His Son 
to die in your place and pay the penalty of your sin that He may make you zealous for good works. It is really not possible to get that and to think I can just live however I want to live. We don't earn the pleasure of God by our holiness. But when God cleanses us and saves us, He does so to purify unto Himself a people for His pleasure who are zealous for good works. The result of redemption is holiness. And we're taught that here. And you'll see it more as the book unfolds. I delivered you out of Egypt. I delivered you from these false gods. I've given you life. Serve me. Love me. Worship me alone. Not because our God is proud, but because our God is right. There's no other God. He loves us and He cares for us. And so He says, worship me alone. This holiness is to show itself in our lives. As Peter writes, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We see the connectors to Israel. And even to Leviticus 17 here, do we not? Ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ. He had to bleed. He had to die this violent death. He was this lamb without blemish or spot. And when we come to the spotless lamb, the holiness doesn't stay there. By God's grace, it travels back home with us into every aspect of our daily lives by His grace. Let's bow for prayer. We are grateful, Lord, for Your goodness and kindness to us in Jesus. What else can we do but pray and thank You for the wonder of this plan through the centuries that continue to point us to the truth. We thank You for Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. We thank You for the life that's in His name and for the fact that we can stand here together today in Your presence as a congregation and say on the authority of Scripture, on the authority of Jesus' work, that my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. We praise You for this. And again, for those who know not Christ as Savior, we ask, Lord, that they would see in this drama the vision of Christ. They would see the pointers to Him and come to saving faith today. For those that come now to baptism, we rejoice that they identify with this very message that there is one true and living God that Jesus Christ is the exact representation, that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, the Lamb whose blood purges from sin. He unblemished, and we in His righteousness, righteousness now standing before You, forgiven. Thank You for those that have identified with that message. We pray Your hand of unique blessing upon them as they identify with Christ in the waters of baptism, and as they covenant with this church to walk together as those who worship Jesus Christ alone. And we will praise you for what you're pleased to do. 
in our lives together today. Through Christ we pray. Amen.